I wasn't surprised terribly, but when it actually happened and you read the headline, it was definitely a gut punch, no matter what your thoughts are on Bishop Strickland. The Catholic left has been so big on the importance of the laity, and yet the laity are offered no explanation for why. It sounds like a church that's saying, shut up, we're getting rid of this guy because we don't like him and we're not even going to say it. It's scorched earth, smash mouth politics. You don't care what happens. All you care about is winning today. I do believe that our Heavenly Father is very patient, but after a while, he's going to say, I'm going to force you to put up or shut up. And the question facing the church right now is, is church teaching wrong and society right? Or is it the other way around? Do you want me to answer that? Answer. The church is right. <laughs> Bam. Did I get it right? Nailed it. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Erica and Josh, as always. And of course, we're going to be talking about Bishop Strickland. So the news has kind of marinated for a few days now, but it's been confirmed Bishop Strickland has been deflocked, as we've been saying. Uh, he has not been defrocked, but he's been deflocked. He no longer is the Bishop of Tyler, Texas. And some people celebrated this move. Uh, some people are in dismay. Uh, we're just trying to give you a straight an answer of what we understand at this time and how maybe we should be thinking about it. So Erica, if you go into the details of how we were removed We're not here. just trying to get to the facts, bro. I'm also dismayed, so whatever. Yeah. But go ahead. This, no, was, a, this was yeah. a sucker punch. Like I, I'm going to go through the details, but I just want to say like I wasn't surprised terribly, but when it actually happened and you read the headline, it was definitely a gut punch, no matter you know what your thoughts are on Bishop Strickland. It was, it was shocking. And here's why it was shocking, because on Saturday, we woke up to the news coming out of Rome that Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, was being removed from his uh, diocese. He had been asked to resign on November 9th. He had declined to resign because he said a bishop can't leave his flock, and he'd done nothing wrong. The Vatican issued this statement via Cardinal DiNardo and uh, said that he was being removed. And so there was no reasoning given, which of course opened up the Catholic world to myriads of speculation on why he was being removed. And part of the part of the issue is that there was no real judicial review here. There are very clear guidelines by which a bishop may be removed from his diocese. He can die, which obviously isn't the case here. He can ask to be removed, you know, he can resign. Either he gets to a certain age or he has health issues. Um, or he can be removed by canonical process, which the Pope himself in 2016 issued a motu proprio, kind of tightening up these these canonical processes by which a bishop may be removed. And many of the the parts of the process involve transparency about it needs to be a known violation of something canonical, egregious, financial, sexual, not that that would ever happen with a bishop, right? But it has to be clear, and no reason was given uh, for Strickland's removal. So we are left to our own thoughts yeah, on that. And, and uh, to give full context, he received an apostolic visit. Uh, I think everyone kind of remembers that. It was a couple months ago. In June, um, right. And so after that apostolic visit, uh, there was kind of speculation, is he going to be asked to resign? No one really knew at the time. And now it became clear he was asked to resign a few days ago, and then he now officially said, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, the interesting context, too, is uh, it's very unusual, at least in recent times, to actually have the Pope force someone to resign. He does have the power to do so. Too long, don't read. Yes, he actually does have supreme authority over church and all of its um, activities. But uh, usually what happens is, and, and I think Pope John Paul II had a case of this and Benedict had a case of this, they almost like uh, they put an auxiliary bishop in place, right? Or Seattle, they right, don't. Yeah, right. Or they kind of wait it out. They're usually very, uh, they're not as heavy-handed as no, you're removed. And so now this is the second bishop that Pope Francis has the done third. this to, correct? It's the third. There was okay. an ish, uh, a bishop in Paraguay in 2014, and a bishop in Puerto Rico just 18 months ago in 2022. Uh, very similar. They seem to be guys who kind of put their foot down against some directive coming out of Rome. And within a few months, they're asked to resign. They refuse to resign. And so they get the call from the nuncio to their country saying, you're out. 
And and in no, there was no proof of any, you know, monetary or sexual impropriety. Not, not just no proof. Puerto Rico. Not only yeah, right. not only no proof, but no even accusation of impropriety. Right. That's the. I think in Puerto Rico shocker. they were saying that he he refused to sign a document that said that everyone needed to get vaccinated. Yeah, the other bishops in Puerto Rico had set, signed a letter, and he's like, "Yeah, no, I'm not signing that." Right. He's, he followed the Vatican directive, which is it's according to your conscience whether or not you should receive it. And then he mysteriously was asked to, well, not asked to, he was forced to resign. So this is not the first time this has happened under Pope Francis's tenure. Um, there's been a lot of speculation as to why. Is there a document that people are pointing to or an action that Bishop Strickland has taken that would be like, oh, this is probably why? Well, our our friends on the Catholic left at like National Catholic Reporter, you can guess. They're pointing- yeah, through a party over yeah, this. Yeah, the, there's a little bit of dancing on the grave. They are pointing to a speech that Bishop Strickland gave in Rome on October 31st in which he quoted a letter- from a, an anonymous friend, we don't know who it was, but he he read from this letter, and in the letter, the friend is criticizing uh, Pope Francis flirting with modernity, with um, the trans agenda, etc. And in the letter, the friend refers to Francis as a usurper, as he's taken the chair of Peter from the rightful Pope. And the left is saying, well, Strickland obviously read this because it's what he thinks, it's what he intends. Um, even though, again, like I went back, I watched the speech that he gave. He's clearly quoting a letter. He even pauses after the sentence where the friend calls Francis a usurper. And he makes some kind of remark about, well, you know, you got to figure that out for yourself. You're smart people. Um, but at the same time, his other statements about the Pope have been to reiterate time and again that he believes Francis is the true Pope. He submits to Francis as the true pope, and we should all be praying for Francis because he's a man under attack. Well, I agree with a lot of what Bishop Strickland says on so many things. I think he's a great voice, and we love him. I, I do. I love I love his teachings and stuff like that. But when a bishop does something like that, where you're even calling into question whether or not the bishop of Rome is the true pope and stuff like that, it's not a it, it's not a surprise that that the acts would come down a few months later. I, it's not, it's just not, not how it's going to go. But the, the point I, I get so frustrated at, I think so many Catholics do, is that it's just announced. There's no explanation. You know, like if, if the Pope had said, I feel like this bishop was trying to undermine the unity of the Catholic Church by attacking and, um, and, and dismissing the, the, the Holy Father, then then so be it. Then say that, you know, and because that seems obvious. That's what what's really going on here. I mean, the the speech you gave is exhibit A on that. He also talked about, you know, he's tweeted out messages talking about how the Pope Francis is undermining church teaching, which actually, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, I agree. There's an argument church teaching. for that. But <laughs> well, it's a pretty obvious argument. But the point is. If you know, I'm a layman. So Pope Francis, I suppose, if you really wanted to do, is excommunicate me. But whatever. But if you're a bishop, <laughs> imagine Josh Mercer from the Loopcast getting excommunicated. The content that would come out of that man. I tell. Well, he sent out this thing on Strickland 15 minutes after we sent out the Lube, so that was like frustrating. <laughs> so I hold grudges. But no, I mean, uh, I just, I, I think, I, I just want to make sure everyone's clear. I think Bishop Strickland is a wonderful voice. I, I agree with so much what he says. But I felt like, you know, he was taking risks by calling out Francis in this way. And then it's not really that big of a surprise that he would drop the, the axe on him. But again, even that he removes him, why is it that like the Catholic left has been so big on the on the influence and the importance of the laity? And they talk about Vatican II and the laity and all that kind of stuff. Right. And yet the laity are offered no explanation for why. Yeah, it's so like, much for synodality. Just, yeah. Oh, synodality, a listening church? It sounds like a church that's saying, shut up. Here's our exactly. rule. We're getting rid of this guy because we don't like him and we're not even going to say it. Josh, I mean, that's one part of it. That's one part of it is the lack of transparency, of course. But then the other part of it is people that have been removed, there's an obvious, you know, spot the difference here uh, because people that are on the very progressive side of trying to change church teaching and trying to change the church itself. 
I mean, Father James Martin is kind of the top of mind here. They get promoted. Um, there's German bishops blessing people. Not just Father James Martin. Right. You got like the bishops, bishops you know. <laughs> the entire right. German eparchy. People inside the church. Mm-hmm. Or the bishop in Argentina that's a friend of his, you know, that he's that had a lot of improprieties. And Francis was like, ah. Just come live in Rome near me. Yeah. and it just- Right. So if, if anyone's questioning why people are upset and maybe are distrustful over this, well, there's just been a standard of punishing people who l- fall on one side of issues and are there being rewarding to the other side of people on the issues. It's very obvious. I well, mean, then you have that bishop. Remember, here. we were talking about two weeks ago, the the artist bishop that was- Rupnik, um, right. Rupnik, yeah, that was uh, sexually priest, abusing right. people. He's a priest. Yeah. He's a reincarnated in a diocese, yeah. Right. His so art is everywhere. It's just like, well, it's one of those cases where you have a pope who is rewarding friends, even if they're horrible human beings, and punishing enemies, his enemies, but they're not really enemies of the church. You know, obviously, this case, we're talking about Bishop Strickland, but as I mentioned before, you know, uh, Archbishop Corleone, you know, was it's like, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a Pope, I think is acting very petty. And here's the thing, like if you're Pope Francis, let's just, we have to understand like, what is the nature of what the Pope, the papacy is here, right? The papacy is supposed to be an uninterrupted continuation of the previous, you know, successors of Peter, right? And this papacy has not done that. It's been a rift uh, right from the beginning, but most recently, if okay, so when Pope Benedict issued that motu proprio, allowing for a flourishing of the Latin Mass, again, I don't even go to Latin Mass, but I have a lot of friends do it. I support it. Go for it. I'm sure Archbishop um, uh, Cardinal Bergoglio, who is now our Pope Francis, I'm sure he thought this was a horrible idea at the time. Obviously, because seven years later or whatever, he he was pope and he gets rid of it. But the thing is, you should have a f- respect for the office because if you're so disrespectful of the previous occupant by just saying, "Oh yeah, what this one little thing that he did on the Latin Mass," I'm going to completely do the opposite of that. So you're just inviting your the guy who comes after you to wipe the slate clean when you're there. And so exactly. then, so then, what is the papacy? Is it really a center of unity? Are Catholics really supposed to respect it? And this is what I, when I get kind of reminds me of the presidency. I now. know executive I know. <laughs> orders, Catholic style. And sometimes yeah. I get Catholics right. who are because like Catholics who who support tradition, who tend to be more you know conservative in nature, they have a, a I would say a larger than normal respect because they respect tradition. They respect the, this the men who get ordained to the priesthood and who get ordained to the becoming bishop, and so they have more deference right to the to the church and its hierarchy and all that stuff right okay so we have more deference more respect and this is how we're treated and sometimes when someone gets upset by this they're like oh wait a minute josh you're not being respectful you're not being respectful to the office you know something pope francis is not being respectful to the office he's being dismissive of his immediate predecessor he's being dismissive of the other uh, successors to the apostles like Bishop Strickland. If if you think Bishop Strickland's acting a little off and being disrespectful and and calling into question your authority as the Bishop of Rome, then call uh, then talk to him, call him out, right? Talk to him, call him out publicly. But do you remove him? What's the purpose of removing him? I, I just don't understand. Like, there's no canonical reason. There's no he's. It's not like he's incapacitated. It's not like he's done any financial or sexual scandal. It's personal. It it comes across as this is personal. And I think the other thing too, it's not only the nature of the papacy that we need to remember here, it's the it's the office of bishop itself. The Pope is the first among brothers, he's the bishop of Rome. But every bishop who is in charge of a diocese, who's given charge of a diocese, has his apostolic authority. Yes, exactly. Has apostolic authority from Christ himself over those over the people he's been entrusted with. And I think, you know, we've reading the the pillar, they have a couple guys in at the bishops meeting this week and they've been talking and, and even bishops who have been critical of Strickland and don't like his style on Twitter or whatever, they're not, this is very disturbing even to them. And this is the talk at the bishops conference, which is going on right now is, you know, this is beyond, this is a step so far. It sets a precedent 
that is yeah. that is not synodal. It is not fraternal. Well, it's, it's a shot across the bow. Right. It's a shot across it's the bow. It's a warning. They could be the next one. Right. If the next pope gets in and they see that this is the standard and they have pope their bishops they don't like, gone. Right. Like and that's now a threat to every bishop now if this is going to become the standard for how it's right. treated. So you, how you're treated if you just don't like you. Right. It's like it's like Pope Francis exercised the nuclear option here. Yeah. You know, like to, to use a crass political term, and that's the whole point. Like we're we're seeing the application of political tactics to a church, which is if that's not how it's supposed to be. The church is Christ's bride. So we're not supposed to have, you know, scorched earth, smash mouth policies and tactics going on in our church. And I think that's a that's a definite warning sign. We're having that in politics today, you know, nuke the filibuster, you know, forget every moray. And it's like Trump and Biden both were on this. I'm not trying to single any one of them out. Uh, Obama was probably the the biggest aggressor of this in recent times. Where you just just it's it's scorched earth, smash mouth politics. You don't care what happens. All you care about is winning today, and you don't think about the what kind of thing, what kind of legacy you're handing off to the next generation and what you're doing to the institution that you're expecting everyone just to revere, right? So if everyone, like, if everyone's supposed to revere and respect the authority of the Catholic Church and then you use these smash mouth tactics, then the next generation is going to be like, oh, well, it's all just a game. It's all power so plays, right. It's all power play, all Machiavelli, just get as many cookies as you can, like, forget it. So- then what, what is it suddenly really a mystical body of Christ? Is it really this, you know, no. Right. And I think that there's that deep sadness. Like there's the anger. I, I totally had my angry moment, like flip the tables and all that. But I think as that fades, there's just this deep sadness to witness this kind of machination going on among who those who should be our fathers in the faith, who should be spiritual fathers. And it, it's just... Yeah, my, my takeaway is absolutely we need to pray and we need to do penance and fast and follow Bishop Strickland's own example right now, which is he still flew to Baltimore. He's not in the bishop's meeting because he said the nuncio told him not to come in, even though he could. Um, but he's out there on the sidewalk praying a rosary. And really, there's that. But I think there's also Catholics need to arm themselves with a knowledge of the history of the church that this is not an anomaly because because otherwise, you know, you see people, well, that's it. I'm leaving the Catholic Church. I'm going to go into schism now with this guy because obviously Francis has destroyed the authority of the church here. No, 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 he hasn't. And that would be the wrong reaction. Um, but I think it's important to recognize like, yeah, we're angry and we're sad because this isn't how, how you know, you can see Christ sitting down. Because it is a scandal and, and it is an abuse of his power. Yeah, like how did Christ react when the apostles were like, who's the greatest among us? Who's going to sit next to the right hand of the Father? Me, no, me. And Jesus is like, I wanna, guys. I want to get more into like how we should think and feel about this for sure. But one thing I do want to give Bishop Strickland a lot of credit on, uh, he was one of the most vocal voices post-McCarrick. And I know McCarrick's a really sore spot for a lot of Catholics because what he did was evil, immoral, and a uh, shout out to Kevin Wells at Crisis. Yeah. He did a great job writing an article about his own experiences with uh, abuse and things like that. But uh, at a time where everyone was just kind of like, what's going on? The, the McCarrick fallout was horrible. He was in such a high position in the church. How did this happen? Uh, Bishop Strickland was the one that got up in front of brother bishops and said, if, how did he get promoted? How did it happen if we're really of one mind that the act of homosexuality is wrong and sinful? There seems to be questions about that. I think we have to face that directly. And that rocked the boat. And that probably, I, with a lot of Strickland's actions, it's kind of like, well, you know, what do you expect? He criticized his boss and he got fired. But he probably understood that there was a pretty strong likelihood he was going to get fired. Tom, you mentioned last time about the, the burgeoning generation of uh, new priests are overwhelmingly much more faithful to church teachings, right? And that's a big difference from the priests that were ordained like three generations or two generations ago those it's a that crop that are, are were the bishops in our country through the 80s and 90s who shielded was, McCarrick know, and his ilk yes yeah. exactly and I I mean for years I like to think you know if I had to pick a, uh, a spot in time uh, back it was right around 1990 91 I forget when the US bishops I mean they, they had issued a document on racism in the late 70s it was so vile it's 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 basically cribbing 
the critical race theory stuff now. I mean, that's probably where those guys got it from. It's horrible stuff. All the, I, I thought their talk on nuclear war stuff, disarmament stuff was foolish throughout the 80s. And then you get to like 1990, just to t- take a spiritual aspect of it, that the U.S. bishops petitioned Rome for the removal of certain uh, holy days of obligation and moving, you know, ascension to, you know, so many places from Thursday to, to Sunday. And, oh, you can't go to, can't expect you to go to church on a Saturday on a holy day of obligation, so it won't be obligatory on Mondays and Saturday. All this kind of junk. That's, to me, the high water, high water mark of just, you know, foolish you know, liberalism in the church in the United States. And then, of course, as you were getting at the, the the scandals, like just shuffling around predators and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so many Catholics had no clue and they couldn't imagine that this. So when it came to light first with Boston and then all throughout the first decade of this century, we find out that it's being repeated in Pittsburgh. I knew about it through my hometown in Minneapolis at the time. And I think the, the faithful have suffered so much. And then the, the scandal of McCarrick, that it was not just priests, bishops shuffling priests around, it was a, a cardinal in our own church that was a molester himself. And I just feel like the faithful have been besieged so hard. And so Strickland standing up, as you say, at this meeting saying, we got to get with the program here. I think the number of bishops today in the United States who are more aligned you know, with traditional thinking has gone up. It's maybe a soft minority, but it's growing every day because you're finally starting to see this generation of you know bishops uh, be replaced. So I do feel like the tide's turning, but it is a long slog. It's it's making that way through the institutions. It takes a while. It's a long slog, and it's caught the attention of Rome, and it's so we saw that. The interview in America Magazine a couple of weeks ago from the papal nuncio, uh, Cardinal Pierre, and he's he leaning into the U.S. bishops and the American Church and saying things like they're reactionary, they're you know just uptight, they're rigid. All the young priests in America want to wear cassocks. Like, uh, I mean, has and there's there's no evangelization, there's no reaching out to the margins, and. I mean, props to Archbishop Broglio, who stood up at the opening for the USCCB conference. Cardinal Pierce in the room. He'd just given this this other talk about like the Eucharist being accompaniment and perception and dynamism in the Eucharist. I mean, he didn't even say the Eucharist is the body of Jesus Christ. So it's just this like gibbly gosh word salad about helping us give new life to the world. Archbishop Broglio got up and not directly, he congratulated Pierre on becoming a cardinal. And then he just went into, here's how the American church, that here are the signs of hope. And he just went through all the points in that America interview and said, you know, here's what bishops are doing. Here are these movements in the church. Here's focus. Here's net ministries. Here's, you know, courage. Here's, he went through all of these initiatives. And is the church in America shrinking? Yes. Mass attendance is way down after COVID. Uh, Bishop Brennan from Brooklyn, who we mentioned last week, he had a letter this week about the drop in mass. So are, is there a shrinkage? Yes. But are there signs of hope and vitality? Yes. And Broglio stood up to Cardinal Pierre and said, this is an unfair characterization of our of what's going on among Catholics in America. And I, I just wanted Yo, to give props to him. Shout out. Shout out to him. And then shout out to, we had someone in the YouTube comments say that he was an altar server for Bishop Brennan in Brooklyn. No way. And he said, he said he was like one of the most upstanding men he's ever met. Uh, like, oh man, shout out to that guy. It's kind of a cool tidbit to the whole uh, Bishop Brennan saga over in Brooklyn. But I mean, 40% down. But if if we could like, because I think the question everyone ha- is hanging in their head because Bishop Strickland meant a lot to a lot of Catholics. He was very influential and a great leader. And he's gone. I, I mean, love he's him. He's gone now. I love so him. Yeah. So I think there's people that are tempted to be like, all right, well, do we need to leave the church? Do, uh, well, so do like, we... this is what, exactly. And, and this is why that, as Erica mentioned, this letter from Bishop Brennan, it's pretty interesting. He he put out this letter saying attendance at mass over the last eight years is down like four, uh, five years or whatever. It's down 40% in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, it really gets to, it's like, which way? Which way do you want to go, church? You know, do you want to continue this pattern over the last 50, 60 years where you have not confronted the sexual revolution, but have tried to 
just mm, plead neutrality, not talk about it, you know, whistle past the graveyard. That Has that worked for you? Or worse. No, no. I just want to step in here. Not just neutrality or worse. Out of the Vatican last week, we have this Vatican trans memo about transsexuals oh can gosh, be godparents yeah. with totally adopting the language of the sexual revolution in a church teaching document. So not just neutrality. Sorry to jump in on you, but... No, it's go just on, that on, I, feel like, I feel like our Heavenly Father has enormous patience, but after a while, he makes you decide. And the question facing the church right now is, you know, does the Catholic Church need a serious infusion of the 21st century, or is it the other way around? Does the 21st century need a serious infusion of church teaching? That's the question that's, that's facing us today, facing the synod, facing everything we do as Catholics today. Like, who is, is church teaching wrong and society right, or is it the other way around? That's what we're getting at. Do you want me to answer yep. that? Okay. Answer. Uh, the church is right. <laughs> Did I get it right? Bam. <laughs> Did I get it raised, Josh? <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. 100%. Um, so quick, quick, quick bump before we get into the next section, we have the uh, the Receipts podcast. And maybe some of you have checked it out, but I can't encourage you enough. It's one of the coolest things I think we've done. Sweet voice actor, rosy, deep voice. But uh, it's basically a podcast version of our investigative reporting on the church's response to COVID. So if you're wondering why your church shut down and why it acted the way that it did, uh, we have some answers for you. It's very fascinating. It will be in the description here. Very well done. Go check it out. It's called The Receipts. So next section here, we move on to lifestyle. Uh, so this was sad, but a little bit of a positive ending, but kind of sad at the same time. But I think something a lot of people can re relate to. So I'm referring to Baby Indy. Uh, so Dean and Claire Staniforth in the UK, uh, they knew they had a baby, Indy, that had health complications before she was born, but decided to continue with the pregnancy. And this is even though doctors pressured them to have an abortion. Uh, so Indy was born in February and began experiencing health problems only a few hours after extreme seizures needed to be resuscitated when she stopped breathing. So this is, I don't know if this is just a UK thing, and Josh, maybe you have more information on this, but there was decisions being made because she was on a ventilator as to the court needed to get themselves involved and rule whether or not it was in the best interest of Indy to stay living, basically, to stay in this ventilator and keep living. And they basically ruled no eventually, but there was this long drawn out court battle. Um, the Italian government said that they would extradite her and, and put her in a hospital and take care of her. They got refused that. Um, I mean, sad end of the story. She did pass away, but she was baptized and the, the parents were baptized. But I was just curious, like, I think there's examples of this elsewhere, but it just seemed to me so odd that the UK government felt they needed to be involved in this situation. Yeah. Well, this is the second time in 10 years that this has happened. The British and, government owns healthcare. Right. So, I mean. And they own your children. So, so it is a socialized healthcare oh, yeah. deal. Like yeah. this couldn't happen in America. Well, not necessarily, but yeah, I mean, in, the- Healthcare system is owned by the government in England, and it and this does remind us of the case back in 2017 with Charlie Gard. So, um, you know, in in this case, as in I think as well with Charlie Gard, the Italian government offered citizenship to the baby. So it's like literally, it's an Italian citizen now. Let this baby Indy come to Rome, and we'll try to help her out because Italy might have socialism, but there's still that reservoir, you know. Xerox copy, maybe, of Catholicism, but where they're like, we want to help people who are hurting. Like, you know, that's kind of... Well, the prime minister is pretty awesome. Yeah, Georgia no, no, yeah, I know, but still. Yeah. You know, I mean, most of most of Italy is, is former Catholics now rather than Catholics, but there's still that kind of reservoir, like, baby's dying, let's try to save it. Whereas in England, it's evidently not the case. It's just thought of as a drain on the treasury. So... They try to give him citizenship, like fly him out, and the government's like, yeah, no, no, you don't get to take your baby. That's just, just like so bizarre to me. It's like, like literally, just let us move the baby, and it's not a drain, drain on your money, and someone over here wants to help him, why won't you let him? It's just, it, it's again, because socialism is just a monstrous ideology, and they, just people, they just, they, they get so robotic with their ideology that they don't allow yeah. reality, no certain humanity. circumstances like this to right. allow to make them question their 
right. you know, Any ideas. Any challenge to the system is just shut down, even if it costs a baby her life or costs parents right. the joy of holding their child as she's dying. And so, it, yeah, it's a monstrous story. But like you said, Tom, the, the bright side of it is that she was baptized and really cool story there. The parents were not people of faith. They weren't baptized themselves or raised in the faith. But the dad, um, Dean, he testified, or he testified, he witnessed afterwards that as he was going through this court battle for his daughter's life, for the right to take her out of the hospital, get her to Italy, and they lost, he felt like he was going through hell. And his reaction to that was, well, if hell exists, heaven must exist too. Uh, and if the devil exists, God exists too. And they decided to have her baptized. And um, apparently, he and his wife are now both preparing for baptism themselves as well. And so baby Indy died a saint. She She's with God in heaven, we know, um, because of the sacrament and and a beautiful story in a way of, of God resurrecting even the most horrible situation for parents to be in. But um, doesn't speak well for nationalized healthcare. Yeah. No. For sure not. And it, it, even though, of course, sad ending of the story, somewhat hopeful, but sad ending of the story as she was put on hospice and passed away, it was kind of a good reminder. I feel like we're so often embroiled in the abortion debate, but to see when parents do have a child, the there's really, it's, it's cliche, but there's nothing that a parent would not do for their own child. And I feel like the way that we talk about when you, you talk about like gene splicing or CRISPR or you know, if you get a ultrasound that's not even super accurate, but it says they could have Down syndrome, the thought even crosses people's mind like, oh, yeah, you could abort the child and you know that might be what's best. But I feel like once people like hold a baby, hold their baby in their hands, like the lengths that this guy, this guy literally tried to fight like British, the government, right. like the entire government to save his child. It's kind of, it's a, it's a, it was inspirational to me. Can you imagine you know? a scenario where, like, if you could start, I mean, obviously, we'd love to get rid of abortion as an option altogether because it's savage and it's nasty. But imagine, like, every time a, a doctor had to give the prognosis that we, we suspect that your baby might have some congenital problem. And I think to myself, my son, 10 years ago, heart surgery when he's only seven months old. So I think about these little ones. Um, but like, oh, your kid might have Down syndrome. And before you can make a decision about whether or not you want to continue the pregnancy, as you said, I don't like that verbiage. Um, oh, you, oh, you want to kill a baby? They just they should just grab a baby in the hospital and put it in the in the mom's arms. Go, okay, so we want to tell you, <laughs> like literally have to hold yeah, a right. baby yeah. in your arms as you're like, yeah, dude, I totally uh, abort the child that's in my belly. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. Like, it's unspeakable. It's just well, it's kind of sick how we've we've just basically normalized the separation of humanity from what is literally growing inside of you. The only way we could do that, Tom, is is through words like, you know. Right. And it's been done. I mean, if you talk to people, they're trying to not even assign any type of life to the fetus. Yeah, it's a clump of cells like the fact that that phrase exists and to see like once someone holds their child, like it'd be insane for anyone to say like, oh, yeah, I got to put it on hospice like. It's not worth the money or it's not worth the state's resources to keep my child alive. No one would say that. They, they'd do anything they possibly yeah, could to keep their, their kid alive. Wall, right. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of love that, that sentiment and like that, that sentiment that Mr. Gregory experienced like led him to faith, which is like eternal life. So in a way, really sad, but I think there's some really uh, oddly positive things in there. It does speak to the fact that maybe the change that we need as a society is you know we start talking about Ohio and the and the defeat that we had there. Really, what we need to change is in the hearts, you know, the hearts and minds of people. We need more people to have that transformation that that this father had and this mother had. <laughs> because by the time it gets to the ballot, we've sort of already lost. Yeah, and there's a good article by Daniel McCarthy on this, and it's like. You know, there's a lot of people who try to change the hearts and minds of, of, of people, but like if you have 50, five, 50 some years of headwinds that you're going up against, it's it's hard. So we as Catholics will often offer secular scientific rationales for, hey, it's actually its own life, it's separate DNA, and here's what happens, and don't, you know, that's why you shouldn't get an abortion. 
and I get it, but this this article by Daniel McCarthy, and shout out to my friend Barry Bruss, he's a dedicated looper. He sent it to me. And I totally agree with this article. It's like, ultimately, if we want to have a pro-life America, we're probably going to have to start changing hearts and minds away from this secular culture, you know, where everything is crass and, you know, it, if it's good for me, then great. And, you know. Well, and we're the worst. Hedonism. We're the worst evil. The worst thing evil to befall anyone is suffering. That somehow, you know, suffering is is something that should be eradicated. Which is the which is the justification people use for aborting children with these conditions, saying, "Well, I don't want them to suffer. This is the loving thing to do is to kill them." And I think even more than handing a baby to a woman who's just had a prenatal diagnosis, like having her meet having her and the dad meet a family who's raising a child with that condition. Like how many people have actually spent time with a family blessed with a Down syndrome child? I mean, Down syndrome babies are endangered. They're 90% of them are aborted. And so unfortunately, the opportunity to to be with people who have this um, condition is is dwindling. But But to see that love and to see that in spite of being different and in spite of suffering they've endured, it's a life worth living that brings great joy. Yeah, and I just think that like what Bishop Brennan at Brooklyn said, talking about the decline in how many people are going to church and like he's with his father, you know, is heartbroken that his child is dying and he can't even try to rescue it. But there's like a there's a, a current running through all of this and it, it amounts to if the church herself is not calling us to the sainthood, not trying to inspire us to be better, and it's just going to Sunday Mass is just a church of nice, and you know, let's talk about the gospel, and isn't that sweet? If you're not, if you're not demanding more of us as our country and our culture are just being laid waste, then I think people are going to, and then, you know, we shut down the churches for a while. And so, like, what is it about Catholicism that requires us to go to mass on sunday it that it's actually jesus yes let's emphasize the eucharist which is what they're doing i applaud that but then take it to the next step and say let's get back to basics it's almost appealing when you look at when when people look today at how uh, muslims take so their face so seriously they pray five times a day they have a special like uh rug carpet that they use and they face east and they have these rituals like they have their you know, Ramadan where it's they're a fasting. Challenge. And yeah, it's challenging you. They're calling themselves, you know, their their church is calling them to a higher standard. And yeah, we fall short or whatever, but we need to do more of that. We need to get back to basics. Again, it's not that you have to Latin mass and all that stuff. I'm not saying that necessarily, but you need to inspire us and call us. It's like, like Braveheart. I love Brave. Or Mel Gibson's character William Wallace just love turns to Robert eyes. the Bruce. He says, "Lead us, lead us." That we need the inspiration. We want bishops who are true shepherds that will inspire us, that will lead us, that will call us to sainthood. And you know what? Just a little thing. If you really think, if you really believe all this stuff. Then maybe confession shouldn't be from three to three thirty-five <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Josh, Preach. you can take my life, but you can't take my freedom. Yeah, don't be dude, Robert the Bruce, be William Wallace. That's like what we got to say. Oh, dude, fire me up! I, I I watch that like twice a week. It's still not the best movie quote of all time, though. What is? Uh, what would you say that is? Oh, wait, I totally fell for that. What is it? I mean, it's the Gladiator, man. Oh, uh, think when. When he when he finally takes off the masks, the mask, and uh, you know the the helmet, yeah, and and he finds out like the emperor's like, oh no, it's this guy, and you know Russell Crowe's character just turns right in front of the screen, and actually I found out later that they did that such a close headshot because as he's wearing that helmet, the hair kept sticking up, and so he he says, I look totally goofy, <laughs> so that they had to do that, they had to get you know. Right in front Wait, of him. What was the, what was the line again? My name is my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, Commander of the Armies of the North, General of the Felix Legions, 
and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Bam. That's a bomb. Great my, movie. Uh, or my name is Indigo Montoya. <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to Second die. Second greatest line of all time. Um, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, speaking of, uh, uh, you know, competition and uh, blood, bloodthirsty competition, we have the election Good update. segue, so, Pogo. Uh, Very impressive. I'm getting good at that. I mean, I, do I don't know. Is, is this, is the Republican primary contest really a, a, a gladiator's? I mean, it's a circus. But is it really a gladiator competition? Nikki Haley wields a weapon, man. Nikki Haley. She's got her Nikki heels. Haley wields a heel. Are you she serious? She's got her heels and she'd kill you with it. So. <laughs> you know, I got to say, it Watch feels out. more Top like- fashion. It feels like an, uh, a season of The Apprentice. Who's going to be the oh. running mate to <laughs> Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> this basically is a season of The Apprentice. That was awesome, oh Josh. This Give the man a bonus. Is. Brian. Well, uh, someone just got the classic line, you're fired. Uh, Tim Scott has officially backed out of the race. It was so surprising uh, that his own team was watching the TV during the announcement and did not know it was coming, which is kind of crazy to not relay that they're done. Maybe it's because he's so happy with his new girlfriend that he soft launched during the last debate. No, it's actually kind of funny, though. He, his campaign sent out one of these classic like alerts, like, if I don't get support from you now, it may be it. And then literally 15 minutes later, it was he quits. It. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I guess, no I guess enough people didn't donate. <laughs> well, uh, last ditch effort. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't know how many people were surprised at this. He really had no yeah, support. Yeah, he was under 4%. Um, like people liked poll. him a lot. And actually, this is like, no, how did they, he, he had raised a lot of money people. and Ooh. he had high approval ratings. We asked people, what do you think of all the candidates? Yeah, that was weird. Everyone liked Tim yeah, Scott. They Why? liked him. Because he's a nice guy. And like, he's no threat to your favorite candidate. So you're like, yeah, I like him, sure. But then if you ask DeSantis people, hey, what do you think of Nikki Haley? They get mad because she's <laughs> carpet bombing Iowa with ten million dollars in ads against her. And if you uh, ask, she's a big fan of bombing, right? Oh my gosh, we put together this clip. Uh, it, it, should, can you roll the tape now? Oh, this is so uh, Nikki Haley. This is what she dreams about. You're sure you're referring to the bomb Iran song, correct? Bomb, 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 bomb Iran. Bomb, 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 bomb Iran. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, a uh, very popular uh, song in the 1960s, Beach Boys, uh, Barbara Ann. And in the late 70s, someone cut a, a little, you know, when the Ayatollah was doing all that stuff in Iran, they cut this little song, bomb, 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 Moran. <laughs> it's pretty funny. The thing is, former presidential candidate John McCain actually used that actual line, like kind of snarkily joking, but like he said it when he's in, in a, some sort of town hall. He goes, bomb, 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 Moran. And everyone knew, like, that's what that guy wanted to do. John McCain wanted to bomb everywhere, every place, you know? And and so Nikki Haley's, you know, she's right there with it. She's, you know, I'm so aggressive. I've got, you know, ammunition in my heels. Like, okay, be careful how you walk, I guess. That's kind of stupid, though. Yeah, that was the oddest tweet I think I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And it really hurt my brain trying to figure it out. But Nikki Haley versus Vivek was kind of the story of the last debate. Uh, we have some internal debates as to how serious Vivek is as a candidate. I'm a big fan of the rhetoric. I think he actually doesn't sound like a robot and makes a lot of good points. Whether you could say about the fact that he voted for Obama last time, you know, it's that's up to you. But he's kind of dismantling Nikki Haley. If that's all he does, he's he's adding to this conversation. He's definitely making it Nikki more interesting. Absolutely. Campaign. Nikki yeah. Haley is reprehensible, I think. He pointed out that her daughter was on TikTok and she called them scum. Uh, she He also called out a lot of her uh, family corruption because they started their own uh, military contract after she was military uh, industrial company, basically, like a defense uh, contractor kind of defense thing. company, right. defense contractor company uh, right after she was with the UN and has made quite a, a lot of money during that. And she was pretty broke right after the UN stint. Uh, he he called her Hillary Clinton on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if Nikki Haley suicided anybody, but I I know what you mean. Yikes! No, but like, and I think, uh, you know, Nikki Haley's terrible. And and the thing is, what she's doing. Wait, she's, you think you what? don't like her? Yeah, I'm, no, I'm obviously confused. never Nikki here. But elaborate, she's spent, Josh. She spent. So she's right now spending ten million dollars on on ads in Iowa to try to, you know, attacking DeSantis with the hopes that if. If he is, you know, completely collapses in the polls, that 
she'll obviously get his supporters. But the fact is, no. Like, I actually like Ron DeSantis. If I live in Iowa, I'd probably vote for him, right? Okay, and I'm putting my cards on the table, no sweat. But here's the thing. If it was a three-way race between Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Donald Trump, and and DeSantis' support started falling really fast, and it was like, okay, well, it's either going to be Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, um, Donald Trump wins my state. Like, well, I'm going to vote for Trump because he's my second best pick. This, I, So many candidates make the assumption that, oh, just like it's 2016, if I knock off everyone else and it's just me and Trump, then I'm going to get 55% because Trump's only at like 45%. I think that's a total misconception because there are a lot of people who support Vivek or DeSantis who their second pick is not Nikki Haley. And their second pick might not even be the other candidate. It might not be, you know, Vivek's, if you support Vivek, your second pick might not be DeSantis. It might be Trump. Same thing with DeSantis. So the idea is, oh, he, you know, he's all he's got. Uh, Trump's got some sort of a ceiling. It's the same thing from 2016. That's not it, that. That's not true. Like if all these other candidates fall out of the race and it's just you and Trump, that doesn't mean you're gonna get every other voter that goes for you. Yeah, Trump was so concerned about this race that he spent his time at UFC and walked out to a Kid Rock song with Kid Rock, Dana White, and Tucker Carlson. And, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and the crowd went totally bananas. They loved it. They loved it. Fun fact, fun fact, Kid Rock grew up like two towns over from oh, me. Oh, hey. Um, local I mean, legend. some of that rubbed not, up, not, too. Not a surprise. Another Michigan boy, yeah. We have a lot of similarities, as you can tell. But uh, yeah, he had a much better weekend than I think any of the other candidates did, and he's so far ahead of everyone in the polls. But that's not even the worst thing Nikki Haley has said recently. Josh, you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, no. So, the, the, I mean, the, the most recent thing, she's, I mean, again, you would think this, again, she was Hillary Clinton. She bashed people who are anonymous online and saying that it's a threat to national security. Mm. Now, this actually really torques me because, of course, we had (laughs) under um, under the Obama administration, we had our federal government cooperating with the FBI, the FBI cooperating with, you know, Twitter to censor accounts. And, uh, and you're like, you think to yourself, liberals, the vanguard of free speech, right. I should be able to say anything, even if it offends <laughs> you. And like, wait, you're working with the federal FBI, law enforcement totally. agencies to stifle a free speech. Like, can you imagine anything more like vile? It's like barfing on Thomas Jefferson's grave. I mean, this is so insane. Right. Right. It, it just Someone's so, I, I saw so much we like uh uh America was built on a non accounts basically. And it is kind the of Federalist true. Papers, with Thomas Sense and right? Thomas Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Nikki Haley would have hanged Thomas Paine. Yeah. I liked this <laughs> one like, this too. Like our from Christina Pusha. She goes, More red flags than a CCP parade. <laughs> like when she saw oh, the clip. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> like, Yeah. So true. No kidding. <laughs> so true. Chris- Christina Pusha is the spokeswoman for Ron DeSantis, and for whatever reason, the Wonder Boys at the DeSantis uh, for President campaign put her, um, you know, behind On lock and key for like I three know. months, and then yeah. finally let her bust free. And she's amazing. So I can't, you know, again when they when they do an autopsy of that campaign, they'll be like, "Why did we stifle her for three months? That was stupid." I mean, to be fair though, she has had a tough time fending off a lot of the heels accu- accusations yeah. on Ron DeSantis, and I have an internal source that did kind of confirm that he does wear some pumps, but it's all good. Which is kind of crazy because not even that short. But I'm a short king. You can just be short. Did you wear heels at your wedding, Tom? No, no heels. Um, Yeah. But think about all like all amazing like world leaders like Alexander the Great, short king. Napoleon? uh, Napoleon, short king. Define great leader. He's 5'8", though. Yeah. (laughs) James Uh, James Madison. Short king. You know, father of the Constitution. short short king. They were all short kings back then, though, because no one had the nutrients to get above 5'7". Come on, man. (laughs) Are you saying I'm nutrient yeah. deficient? <laughs> what did you eat in your childhood, Pogo? <laughs> Look, I come from a long lineage of short kings, and we're doing just fine. It's all good, DeSantis. Twilight Zone, Josh. This is the perfect Twilight Zone of all time. I mean, and it just, it's hilarious, but infuriating together. So we have uh, the Chinese dictator coming to San Francisco for APEC, which is the Asian Pacific Economic Conference, right? And we got all these CEOs and the leaders of all these countries coming to San Francisco for this conference. And Biden's going to be there and he's going to meet with his boss, the Chinese president. 
and uh, you know he's got to he's got to do ten percent for the big guy. So um, what's going on? Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, decides to send out the force. Boom! You know we talked about this for for a long time. We're not the only ones for several years. The amount of defecation in the street that people you know bums who just and everyone just like what they never cleaned it up. It's just there and needles and everything and homeless taking over entire parks and everything. Well, uh-uh. not when the boss is coming to town, not when Chinese dictator Z is coming to town. You got to, they roll in, they clean the streets, get all the fecal matter off the sidewalks, clean it all up. Here's the funny thing. They didn't break the bank. They had the money, the budget to do this. They just decided to do it. Why? Because the boss is coming into town. And so they, it was funny watching this Fox reporter, not Fox News reporter, literally just a Fox affiliate. They're asking people, what do you think about this? And one guy's like, this is baloney. Like, if you can do this now, why can't we have this all the time? Like, why, why does the Chinese dictator get to have clean streets and clean sidewalks in San Francisco? But the people who live here for, a, you know, all year round, they don't deserve clean sidewalks. And this is, again, the, the elite's. The elites in this country have a visceral hatred for everyday Americans. And that's why actually I thought Tucker Carlson's fault. We talked about this a few weeks ago, like architecture, like these big box stores and these big, ugly concrete cements. It's all an attempt to tell the average person, you do not have dignity. Everything is ugly. So I think it's on purpose that our streets are nasty, ugly, full of crime and bums, and they don't do anything about it. Now, here's the problem. Now that you've done this, people are like, why can't we do this every day? So hopefully there'll be but some Josh, changes. Josh, you know there. Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom answered your question. Uh-huh. Well, he gave the best possible answer you could give, right? I mean, you got a lot of people coming into town. A lot of you know, you want to clean up your house, you know, when you got guests coming over. And I'm thinking to myself, um, I don't know, like a river of fecal matter on the sidewalk. I think you could take care of that anytime <laughs> you wanted to. Like if we can land people on the moon, I think we can clean the sidewalks in San Francisco for the love of all that is holy. Did did we? They did. They cleaned it up. Say, we haven't been back. Haven't been back. Um, Don't anyway, go there. Before we get in that conversation, Erica, All right. uh, do you have a We have been back. Closet? We actually did a loop around the moon last May. Didn't you remember that? Yeah. All right. We're not going to go there. This is, like this is beyond our, our scope at Loopcast. The flag wasn't waving. Totally beyond our scope. Yep. It doesn't right. wave. <laughs> it's a moon, you idiot. My toilet zone <laughs> is happy. This is great news. So Ayan, here's the Ali, and I'll tell you who she is in a minute, has announced that she is uh, no longer an atheist, but she has converted to Christianity. And here's who Ayan Hirsi Ali is and why it matters. So she is a known for being a refugee from Somalia. She was the victim of extreme Muslim Islamic, um, the Muslim Brotherhood taking over her town. Uh, she escaped from that. She through a circuitous route. Great book is her memoir, Infidel. I would recommend anyone read it because to understand life inside uh, the Islamic theocracy, there's there's no better insight. She's a great writer, speaker. She's become very influential. When she finally got out, she made it her way to the Netherlands where she became a Dutch citizen. And uh, those of you of my generation will probably remember Theo van Gogh. She collaborated with him on a film talking about women under Islam in Europe called Submission. He was murdered on the streets of Amsterdam. This is 2004. It was a while ago. And she went on um, to become kind of a spokesperson for the new atheism and the idea that enlightened humanism is going to save the world. She, she's a global speaker, well-known. So when she dropped this news that she has converted to Christianity in, and she published an essay which again, everyone should read. It is why I am now a Christian. She, she's playing off of Bertrand Russell's famous essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And she really, she goes through this very thoughtful uh, discussion of how she went from true believer in Islam, total atheist, enlightened humanism to Christianity. And she, it's a beautiful testimony um, to that. So for me, I followed her pretty much my whole adult life. So it was a really, really big story. And she talks about how Christianity alone as a worldview is going to undergird basically the salvation of civilization because only Judeo-Christian values 
um, allow for free conversation or civic discourse. But then she goes, that I just want to quote this. This is really cool. She goes, Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. And by that, she means socialism and Islam. She said, I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? And again, I would encourage everyone to go read her book, Infidel, and her essay, Why I Am Now a Christian. It's really big news globally. Uh, she also gave a great, she was on a wonderful panel at the art conference that Jordan Peterson, um, I could. I wish Jordan Peterson had just shut up and let her talk, but uh, she gave some great points about sort of these bigger themes that we talk about here on Loopcast. So welcome home uh, to Ali and uh, yeah, great news. Go check out all the links I'm going to drop for you. It's awesome. Uh, can I make a humble request for two? Yeah. All right. First one. Megan Rapino, uh, uh, her career ended. <laughs> All right, bring it on. You uh, can definitely have two. So, so Megan Rapino, long and successful, decorated career as a soccer player representing our country, and yet she still remains unbelievably unlikable and off-putting. I don't know how she does <laughs> it. She suffered a non-contact injury in the beginning of the championship game for I think the national. Like, there's a women's soccer league, a professional women's soccer league in America. I just learned about, but she said that. Uh, this injury was proof that there isn't a God as her and her uh, partner were kind of giggling at the, the table about it. Um, said it's just effed up. Can't believe it's just effed up. And I, it, that just kind of took me back into her past. Like how does she, I don't understand how she managed to be so unlikable. Maybe it was kneeling during the national anthem uh, and then keeping that going. And then when she was told to not kneel anymore, she said she'd never sing the national anthem again and kept her hands behind her back, all while representing the country. Uh, maybe Classy. it was the embarrassing loss to Sweden. Uh, could have been the fact that she supports transgender athletes to join her team, which is insane. Again, she's so unlikable that millions of Americans who don't care about soccer were watching soccer and cheering against <laughs> their own country's team. Yeah. That's how unlikable she is. I mean, she's right up there with pestilence. I mean, people cannot stand her. And I just don't know if she doesn't understand why she's not unlikable, why she's not likable, or she just has leaned into kind of being a villain. I mean, she's been big on equal pay, all these different things, but it's kind of sad. It's sad on multiple levels, but it's sad because she could have just been uh, grateful and humble and appreciated the opportunities that she'd been given through her God-given talent. And she'd be a two-time world champion soccer player. Like she's won two gold medals for the US. She's had a long and story career for a female soccer player. And she just chooses to be bitter the whole time. This is just like such a feather in the cap. So I watched that and nothing made it feel more Twilight than going over to the National Football League uh, where, I mean, hate to get in these conversations, but, you know, thousands upon thousands of eyes are watching uh, the Bengals play the Texans. And there's this rookie quarterback, CJ Stroud. He was drafted out of Ohio State uh, with high expectations, but it's always a little bit hard to be a rookie quarterback. It's just usually rookie quarterbacks don't do very well. And he beats the Bengals. He throws for 356 yards. Uh, he's being lauded as rookie of the year. I mean, just it, second win in a row, very impressive. No one thought the Texans would right do anything high. this year. And he gets to his press conference, and the first thing he says is, you know, I'm just really grateful to be here. You know, God has been so good to me, and I, I'm not worthy of his mercy, but uh, he gives it to me anyway, and I love him for that. And I'm so grateful for these opportunities and my teammates. And I feel like he's per- really prepared me to be in these situations. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm like, how could you not love yeah. this guy? Like it, it, if everyone just took notes on that, you didn't even have to be go into the theology, which I think is like beautiful that he's choosing to use this platform to glorify God, of course. But like being humble and working with your teammates and praising others, like that's the way to get ahead, not only with your team, but then like to leave a legacy of people that, like you and like admire you and think of you in a positive light and it's just sad that like megan rapino couldn't take that advice uh, earlier in her career and so she'll forever be this stain on women's u.s soccer when there's so many other positive stories there and with cj stroud it's like what a amazing start to a beautiful you know young career 
hopefully goes on to do amazing things and like continue to glorify God with his gifts and talents. And just, I've never seen it articulated so well from a rookie like that. I, I know Tim Tebow was like mega viral for being, you know, young Harrison pastor, Butker. But, yeah, um, yeah, Butker's out there. There's like these great examples, but CJ Stroud, man, just like blew me away. I was like, I think Megan Rapino is a case where she inhaled, breathed, and embodied like a toxic ideology where, you know, the patriarchy and men are the are the source of all problems in the world, and and she just you know spits venom at, at every turn. It's turn. It's like, gosh, uh, this is working out for you, okay? I guess. Seems just bizarre. But it's, but it's all in spite of all the opportunities that she's been given and all the gifts that she's been given. Like it, it's it's her mindset is so negative and vicious when she could just change her mindset and her she'd life be would happier. be amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, she would be happier. Confirmed, she wouldn't be mad all the time about like all the things. You're the queen of soccer. You're amazing. Like, why are you so angry? It it was really yeah sad. But shout out to CJ. Um, speaking of angry people, um, I had to throw this in. We've got fights going on in the U.S. Senate. Oh my I don't gosh, know if you guys are aware of this, but a representative from Oklahoma almost fought a union boss. Yeah, in a Chicago, hearing, yeah. and the person to stop was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders had to be like, hey, guys, like, calm it down. The guy basically was like reading off. <laughs> I think it was a document that the Teamster wrote, like, this guy's a fraud. He never started his own business. Like, don't listen to anything he says. Yeah, he's calling out and the Oklahoma so, senator, yeah. The Oklahoma senator. And he just reads off all the smack talk that this guy's done about him. He's like, you said anytime, any place. Here's a time. Here's a place. Do you want to go right now? And the guy's like, yeah, stand up. And they cut the camera to the Teamster. And he's pretty beefy as well. Like, these are two big guys. And I'm like, we might have another, like, Senator Sumter beating with Sumner, the cane yeah. situation. <laughs> and Sumner. And I'd almost be okay with that. Like, I think that if men just settled their beefs <laughs> like that, we'd be in a better place. Like, people would be less well, petty. Well, just, bring just, back just, just so our audience is clear, we're not like, yay, violence. We're saying there's a disparity right now where, you know, we have this, we had for many generations, this notion of civility. And then now people are talking smack left or right, like, you know, like it has no consequence. And so oh, there's consequence, it, baby. Now what this, what the center for Oklahoma is doing is like, Hey, put up or shut up. Like you're talking smack. Yeah, right. Like, let's go. And I, I, yeah. I respect that part of it. And then, uh, apparently Kevin McCarthy threw a shiver at a, uh, representative from Tennessee. The one that one of the like 12 that voted against him, yeah. Yeah, he's getting interviewed about it. He said he's walking down the hall and all of a sudden he got an elbow to the kidney. He's like, yep, clear kidney shot. And I looked in shock, like, who just hit me? And it was Kevin McCarthy. And then he's like, Kevin McCarthy, this is like, this is honestly, I, I believe, I truly believe we could solve our debt crisis by doing pay-per-views for boxing matches between <laughs> political opponents. I'm here for that. <laughs> because... The smack talk was so good from this guy from Tennessee. He's like, look, Kevin McCarthy's the type of kid where when he was a kid, he would throw a rock into a window run and run and hide behind his mama's skirt. Like, he has no integrity. He can't look me in the <laughs> eye. Like, this is shaping up to be a throwdown. Like, this, welcome to the Thunderdome, baby. Well, and then Capitol Kevin Hill's McCarthy denied games. it. And he goes, if I'd hit him in the kidney, <laughs> he would have been on the floor. It was just like yeah. back and forth. I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys! Yeah, it's so awesome. again, it's it, it's <laughs> short tempers. Actually, an improvement from this kind of malarkey that we've had for decades. Yeah, this pretense like it, it, at civility. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, all these pretenses. It's like you know because that wasn't the reality. Like I mentioned with some because they like, absolutely people hated got each beat other in the like, Senate. Yeah, like because words. Matter. It's almost like people have to pretend like they don't hate each other now for some reason. But it's almost refreshing yeah. to hear a little bit of honesty. Like, yeah, I hate you. You didn't. Vote and for yeah, we can't yeah, manage. If you want to convince us it's not a uniparty, yeah. yeah, this is the way to do yeah. it. And yeah, we exactly. can't manage to fire them. Like they just keep getting reelected. So come on, guys. Like, yeah, I was talking. This is kind of like the Senate is suffering from. I think what the NBA suffers from now. Like everyone in the NBA is buddy buddy. They all know they're getting fat contracts. So there's no actual rivalries or like tension at all anymore they're all kind of friends and i think back to like the 90s like bad boy pistons i'm watching last dance right now with michael jordan and the bulls and like that so my father i grew up i grew up in the detroit area my father refuses to watch the last dance because he hates michael jordan that much he's like why would i sit and watch hours of michael jordan i hate him i'm like dad i respect that so much isaiah thomas guy is like this was back at a time where people hated each other 
and the games were so much better. Like the the Pistons and the Bulls that was throwdowns, magic dude, yeah. were unbelievable. I go back and watch highlights like all the time because that's back when basketball it meant something. There was like actual hatred. So we need to get back to that with the Senate. I think the NBA should should take some notes from the '90s Pistons. We'd we'd be. I think we'd have some good representatives. We just don't want Dennis Rodman. We're gonna in the get so much mailbag yeah. about this. We have oh Dennis Rodman. Dude, uh, that uh, nope. the lady from Connecticut, oh my your representative, gosh. looks like she Dennis does. Rodman. Yeah, sorry about Deloro, Rosa Deloro. Rosa Deloro and Dennis Rodman have a lot of similarities. Is all I gotta say. We're gonna get so much mailbag about this. You know this, right? <laughs> They're gonna be like violence in the Senate. Look, condoning. We're gonna get we're gonna get good mailbags from people on, that guys. were fans of the Pistons and believe Isaiah Thomas was snubbed from the uh, the dream team. You do gotta think he was. that he was. you know Bill Lambert would be, be a better senator from Michigan than any of the two yahoos we have now. So yeah, Bill Lambert would be throwing elbows. He would be the one throwing kidney shots because he did throw <laughs> kidney shots, <laughs> and they would be on the floor. <laughs> I'm gonna do it, Josh. In the in the spirit of we, I've taken two off. Someone left a cool one. Uh, here we go. Oh, someone said they liked your background the best. By the way, shout out to her. Oh, so Erica, you, Josh, you're in the clear. No, no Josh, I, they like your the background. Yeah, you're so studious. I like you, your background. You clearly the best. read the most books. So we have. Uh, I've been enjoying the Loopcast. It's a great way to stay up to date with what's going on in the Catholic world. Josh, Eric, and Tom offer insightful and varied perspectives while remaining upbeat. Boy, is he going to love that section about the the bad boys Pistons. Uh, the Twilight Zone is aptly named. Shout out to Wild About Elephants, left a review on Apple Podcasts. So if you'd like to join, maybe get a read on the episode, you can go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, five stars, write it personal. Uh, you can hit the inbox, loopcast at catholicvote.org. Another update, uh, we have a new YouTube channel, so it's just going to be loopcast content there. So go ahead and follow that. This will be posted on that now. And uh, we appreciate you guys so much. Uh, we pray to St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis, Our Lady Guadalupe, pray for us. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye, guys.